Hey, thanks for joining us for Pact. I'm the P, Peter Coffin. This is Miss Astronaut Cowboy Doctor, the ACD. Together we are Pact. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe to us on YouTube, Spotify, or your favorite podcast service. Also, leave us a glowing review on Audible and Apple Podcasts. Help us keep the lights on by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash pactpod. Your monthly support gets you into the Discord, where you get exclusive content. You see some content before everyone else. We've also got fantastic packed merch available as well. Finally, and most importantly, tell your friends we rely so, so big on word of mouth. We stream 7 p.m. Eastern every Saturday. Thank you very much for tuning in. Anyway, utopian, socialism, and scientific. Why are we talking about this? Utopian. Oh, <laughs> here we go. Utopian, socialism, and si- No. <laughs> fucking say it. Socialism. Utopian and scientific. Why are we talking about it? Well, every topic that we've done, maybe for the past couple of months, maybe longer, where we are bringing attention to a, a current event or something that's being talked about, we always find ourselves saying it always goes right back to socialism, utopian, and scientific. And, and we talked about the importance of this text when talking about the left, the Overton window, and the ContraPoints video, the, again, largest leftist entertainer on the internet. ContraPoints Envy has 2.2 million views as of right now. I checked it before we started doing anything here. So when we're thinking about what that means, there's so many people who have now seen that video and are coming away with an understanding that is influenced by Helmut Shook. Who is somebody who said that socialism is the product of envy, a facet of human nature. He said that Karl Marx and and just democracy, not, not even communism, the idea of democracy. Uh, he grouped communism, democracy, the ideas of Karl Marx, etc. And he said that it was the result of people not being able to deal with their envy. Which is essentially ContraPoint's thesis. Um, and she cites Helmut Schuck and... Whenever anybody's like, this isn't the point of the video, it's like, you you don't cite that and just like that magically disappears. Right. Also, it is the point of the video. It the is. This is the same and the supporting evidence that she uses from other texts and her other interpretations support that idea. Mm-hmm. Another one of the big things about this video is the opinions that it produced. Uh, one of the top rated comments on the video said the following. This video made me realize that every time I say it's not worth doing anyway, I'm really envious of how easily some people seem to go to parties, dating, education, intimacy, having fun, etc. And realizing that kind of gave my power back to actually go and work on my mental illness and practice self-care instead of projecting onto everyone else. I can change how I look at things. It was a relief. Heart emoji. Again, if that video was about exerting individual change in your own life, and that's the takeaway you get from it, great. The video puts forward all these philosophical points and then ultimately lands on, hey, so here's why this stuff nullifies Marx, yeah. nullifies socialism, nullifies revolution, etc. Not, hey, this is probably good for your recovery and like individual development. Exactly. So Contra characterizes socialism and revolution as utopian because she views societal change as a reflection of the sum of all individuals changing their mind. 
This reinforces to the viewer the type of person that made that comment, that society is the people in their immediate vicinity, and it re redirects them to individualism, gets them saying things like, oh, I'm just envious of the people around me and their ability to date or whatever. That's sort of how this video directs us away from any kind of socialist project or directs us away from any kind of understanding of the fundamental class contradiction of society, etc. And the other thing is, in the video, which came out on August 7th, she says, Utopian ideology instead promises relief from some general malaise, alienation. And then, when asked about it on stream later, <laughs> on the 16th of August, she said, Well, I feel like utopian to me is more of an attitude than it is a specific ideology. So what is it? Uh, an ideology that promises relief? Uh, or is it not an ideology that's just a general attitude? Well, what it is, I'll tell you what, it is Natalie Wynn being completely unfamiliar with angles. And again, I also want to make it clear that we are not doing a socialism, utopian, and scientific reading just because of this video. The current social political zeitgeist in American conceptualization of the left even just Western conceptualization of the left in general is so misguided that it is necessary for us to, which we've been kicking around doing for a while, mm -hmm. to delve into this text. So what we're doing today is reading Socialism, Utopian, and Scientific by Frederick Ingalls. We're going to go through the text while also stopping to comment on it. So let's get started. Part one. The development of utopian socialism. Modern socialism is, in its essence, the direct product of the recognition, on the one hand, of the class antagonisms existing in the society of today between proprietors and non-proprietors, between capitalists and wage workers, on the other hand, of the anarchy existing in production. So what does Engels mean by anarchy there? So class contradictions, proletariat and bourgeoisie, um, and also the market um, and the yeah. role that supply side has in dictating supply and demand in the way that Karl Marx and Engels talk about it. The supply side of things, the bourgeoisie, the ruling class who is dictating what is being produced, um, does not acquiesce to the market mm -hmm. in the way that bourgeois economists would propose. The anarchy of the market is driven by the anarchy of production and that ruling class interests dictate what is being produced, they dictate price. It's sort of like if you were to contrast like uh, the way that the market is controlled with like a planned economy, that is where you can kind of most easily draw a comparison where the in the anarchy of production, you have uh, a number of privately owned interests operating unaccountably within a, a situation where in some cases they may have competing interests they may align with each other they kind of just sort of do whatever they want they're not accountable to anyone whereas in a proletariat state with a planned economy the economy is uh it, it is centrally planned and accountable to the people of uh the country because ostensibly they own it the other thing i will say though because Engels could also have not predicted what happened in the 20th century, no. the 21st century. Um, and we do have a planned economy now that is dictated by finance capital. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, 
it's planned in a manner where you do have exactly what he describes, unaccountable entities sort of expressing their own interests. Whereas in a centrally planned economy where the workers own the means of production, a proletarian state, you'd be working from a centrally planned program that's approved every five years, et cetera, et cetera, that type of situation. It's not referring to anarchy as a political philosophy or anarchy as the colloquial um, no governments, no gods, no masters. No bedtimes. No bedtimes. It's, it's, it's none of that. It, it's a specific thing it's referring to. It's the private holding of the economy to unaccountable entities that often do work as their own thing, especially in, like you said, our finance capital um, powered world that we live in today, where it is a centrally planned economy. It's just, it's unaccountable to the people and centrally planned. It, it's, it is, Not, but like I said, it's still the supply side of yes, the ruling exactly. class dictating what yes. is happening and unaccountably. It, yeah. <laughs> right. But in its theoretical form, modern socialism originally appears ostensibly as a more logical extension of the principles laid down by the great French philosophers of the 18th century. Like every new theory, modern socialism had, at first, to connect itself with the intellectual stock and trade ready to its hand. However, deeply its roots lay in material economic facts. The great men who in France prepared men's minds for the coming revolution were themselves extreme revolutionists. They recognized no external authority of any kind, whatever. Religion, natural science, society, political institutions. Everything was subjected to the most unsparing criticism. Everything must justify its existence before the judgment seat of reason or give up existence. Reason became the sole measure of everything. It was the time when, as Hegel says, the world stood upon its head, first in the sense that the human head and the principles arrived at by its thought claimed to be the basis of all human action and association, but by and by also in the wider sense that the reality which was in contradiction to these principles had in fact to be turned upside down. Every form of society and government then existing, every old traditional notion, was flung into the lumber room as irrational. The world had hitherto allowed itself to be led solely by prejudices. Everything in the past only deserved pity and contempt. Now, for the first time, appeared the light of day, the kingdom of reason. Henceforth, superstition, injustice, privilege, oppression were to be superseded by eternal truth, eternal right, Equality based on nature and the inalienable rights of man. So I'll stop right there with the, you know, reason being the sole measure of everything. Everything of the past being something that is now under the utmost scrutiny. This is enlightenment times. This is rationality, um, rejecting religion, secularizing. Um, We want equality. We want justice. These ideals are operating in the context of being seen as just the ultimate truth or ultimate like platonic abstract attributes to be achieved. Like we talked about um, the first time that we just referenced socialism, utopian and scientific, the, the great truth understander of their philosophical zeitgeist saying, this is what is just, um, this is eternal truth. Socialism is how we achieve it. And here's how all in the theoretical abstract. And so 
these individuals are idealists and they're believing in immutable, completely unchanging phenomena that, that we're striving to achieve through socialism. And in the current political time, in the emergence of conceptualizing reason from bourgeois philosophers and economists and whatever um, emerging from revolutionary periods, that is also in a historical sense limiting reason itself. Even if reason were effective in just manifesting a socialist project, the conditions of the time were not apt for a scientific conceptualization of socialism. Mm -hmm. So those are the confines within which these modern socialists of those times were thinking, is that they are seeking eternal, unchanging truth and reason, throwing away the past and subjecting the past to scrutiny to achieve enlightenment and the ultimate truth and the ultimate justice and the ultimate equality, this immutable construct, um, end of history, the best society that we can create. Mm -hmm. That is the context in which utopian socialists in this time were operating, mm -hmm. bound by, like anybody else, the historical material conditions of their time. We know today that this kingdom of reason was nothing more than the idealized kingdom of the bourgeoisie. That is, this eternal right found its realization in bourgeois justice, that this equality reduced itself to bourgeois equality before the law, that bourgeois property was proclaimed as one of the essential rights of man, and that the government of reason, ah, oh shit, the social contract of Rousseau, <laughs> it was written in French, I don't want to butcher it, uh, came into being and only could come into being as a democratic bourgeois republic. The great thinkers of the 18th century could no more than their predecessors go beyond the limits imposed on them by their epoch. So again, they're, they're limited by the context of their history. The bourgeoisie were the leaders of the revolution against the monarchy. We talked about this two episodes ago. This was the Overton uh, window episode we did. Right. And, and, and we've talked about this, I think, last week as well, and saying that utopian socialism is ineffective because who defines justice, who defines envy, who defines morality, all of those things are dictated by the ruling class, no matter what. That Those are the determinants of how we conceptualize those constructs Absolutely. as regular people, um, no matter how resistant to ideology we think we are. Um, mm -hmm. That is who is dictating that. So no matter what to seek, these eternal, immutable, abstract concepts um, that are good concepts and admiral concepts to advocate for from a moral standpoint, um, that morality is limited by the influence of the ruling class of the time. Mm -hmm. um, so regardless of how well-intentioned those pursuits are, they're limited by history and, yes. and where they are. Um, these could only, in the context of France, lead to bourgeois republics um, because it was not a, a worker-run government was not even in the realm of possibilities yeah, for these yeah. individuals to consider. But side by side with the antagonisms of the feudal nobility and the burghers who claimed to represent all the rest of society was the general antagonism of exploiters and exploited of rich idlers and poor workers. It was this very circumstance that made it possible for the representatives of the bourgeoisie to put themselves forward as representing not one special class, 
but the whole of suffering humanity. Still further, from its origin, the bourgeoisie was saddled with its antithesis. Capitalists cannot exist without wage workers, and in the same proportion, as the medieval burgher of the guild developed into the modern bourgeois, the guild journeyman and the day laborer outside the guilds developed into the proletarian. And although, upon the whole, the bourgeoisie in their struggle with the nobility could claim to represent at the time the interests of the different working classes of that period, yet <laughs> this fucking guy uses so many commas. Oh yeah, he is a comma-holic. He's lost he control. Is. He's he powerless lost, over commas. He is powerless over commas. Uh, where was I? Yet, in every great bourgeois movement, there were independent outbursts of that class, which was the forerunner, more or less developed, of the modern proletariat. For example, at the time of the German Reformation and the Peasants' War, the Anabaptists and Thomas Munzer, in the Great English Revolution, the Levellers, in the Great French Revolution, Babouf. These were theoretical enunciations corresponding with these revolutionary uprisings of a class not yet developed. In the 16th and 17th centuries, utopian pictures of ideal social conditions, in the 18th century, actual communistic theories, the demand for equality was no longer limited to political rights. It was extended also to the social conditions of individuals. It was not simply class privileges that were to be abolished, but class distinctions themselves. A communism, ascetic, denouncing all the pleasures of life, Spartan, was the first form of the new teaching. Then came the three great utopians, St. Simon, to whom the middle-class movement side by side with the proletarian still had a certain significance, Fourier and Owen, who, in the country where capitalist production was most developed and under the influence of the antagonisms begotten of this, worked out his proposals for the removal of class distinction systematically and in direct relation to French materialism. One thing is common in all three. Not one of them appears as a representative of the interests of that proletariat which historical development had in the meantime produced. Like the French philosophers, they do not claim to emancipate a particular class to begin with, but all humanity at once. Like them, they wish to bring the kingdom of reason and eternal justice, but this kingdom, as they see it, is as far as heaven from earth from that of the French philosophers. Again, serious commas. Do you even want to explain that? Yes, I think that... that That's a good stopping point. More or less, this uh, harkens back to enlightenment and the various types of knowledge, justice, reason. Abstract platonic good. Exactly. Goals for society to reach. (laughs) Which, as was just said uh, moments ago, the actual ideology of the epoch is dictated by the ruling class. So... Right. By these ideals, ultimately, you can only ever really reach an ideological or idealistic conclusion that is hindered and limited by the ruling class as it is right now. It's just, it, it, it's going into detail on that point and making it more these, clear. These three really well-intentioned guys that we're going to talk about a little bit more um, are limited by the conditions of their time. And the ruling class ideology of justice that's been dictated to them um, after the bourgeoisie has taken power in a previously monarchical setting. The bourgeois revolution created bourgeois society. Right. And bourgeois society has certain ideals, ideas, laws, and reason 
that you are constrained by because that, whether you like it or not, influences your mode of thought. Four, to our three social reformers, the bourgeois world, based upon the principles of these philosophers, is quite irrational and unjust, therefore finds a way to the dust hole quite as readily as feudalism and all earlier stages of society. If pure reason and justice have not, hitherto, ruled the world, this has been the case only because men have not rightly understood them. The great truth understanding. The great truth is going to log on He's in the gonna... bourgeois epoch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What was wanted was the individual man of genius who has now arisen, who understands the truth. That he has now arisen, that the truth has now been clearly understood, is not an inevitable event, following of necessity and the chains of historical development, but a mere happy accident. He might just as well have been born 500 years earlier and might have then spared humanity 500 years of error, strife, and suffering. This is Ingalls taking apart the idea that some genius came along and invented a theory right. that, that tells us how to rule the world the right way. And for some reason, the ruling class is going to dictate an ideology where justice overtakes their own position for yeah. some reason. If one's theory of change ultimately relies on the system as it currently is, acquiescing to the demands of the non-ruling class, demands which are ultimately contradictory to the system itself and the interests of the ruling class, then one is utopian. Exactly. We saw how the French philosophers of the 18th century, the forerunners of the revolution, appealed to reason as the sole judge of all that is. A rational government, a rational society were to be founded Everything that ran counter to eternal reason was to be remorselessly done away with. We saw also that this eternal reason was in reality nothing but the idealized understanding of the 18th century citizen, just then evolving into the bourgeois. The French Revolution had realized this rational society and government. But the new order of things, rational enough as compared with earlier conditions, turned out to be by no means absolutely rational. The state, based upon reason, completely collapsed. Rousseau's contrat social! <laughs> Rousseau's social contract <laughs> had found its realization in the reign of terror, from which the bourgeoisie, who had lost confidence in their own political capacity, had taken refuge first in the corruption of the directorate, and finally under the wing of Napoleonic despotism. The promised eternal peace was turned into an endless war of conquest, I'm going to stop there because this is... It's a lot. It, that is a long fucking paragraph. Uh, one thing that I that I think is really interesting that I hadn't noticed about before, but is now kind of on my mind given the critique of envy as being the <laughs> moral substrate for socialist and communist projects, is that he criticizes the idea that justice for these utopian socialist thinkers w was at a societal level a, a reflection of the ideal individual mm -hmm. and so it, it gets at that same that idea is, oof, and, that's and good this right here Engels is turning the idea on its head not only were these utopian socialists limited by the abstract characteristics of, of, of justice morality whatever by whatever the ruling class dictates um, but it, it also had this application of individual morality, um, individual character and integrity to what the whole of society could function as most successfully. 
Um, and that is also part of the failure. Um, and I think um, that that is an understated part of Engels' critique. Well, in some ways, you can compare it to like marketing sort of tries to create the ideal consumer, etc. Like it's there to dictate norms, all of the various types of self-help. <laughs> Engels is saying, saying yes to yourself. Exactly. Won't manifest socialism. Exactly, exactly. Or, or basing a society off somebody who says yes to themselves. Yes. The manifest is socialism. I'm saying yes to you. In any case, the society based upon reason had fared no better. The antagonism between rich and poor, instead of dissolving into general prosperity, had become intensified by the removal of the guild and other privileges, which had to some extent bridged it over, and by the removal of the charitable institutions of the church. The freedom of property from feudal fetters, now veritably accomplished, turned out to be, for the small capitalists and small proprietors, the freedom to sell their property, crushed under the overmastering competition of the large capitalists and landlords, to these great lords, and thus, as far as the small capitalists and peasant proprietors were concerned, became freedom from property. The development of industry upon a capitalistic basis made poverty and misery of the working masses conditions of existence of society. Cash payment became more and more, in Carlyle's phrase, the sole nexus between man and man. The number of crimes increased from year to year. Formerly, the feudal vices had openly stalked about in broad daylight. Though not eradicated, they were now at any rate thrust into the background. In their stead, the bourgeois vices, hitherto practiced in secret, began to blossom all the more luxuriantly. Trade became, to a greater and greater extent, cheating. The fraternity of the revolutionary motto was realized in the chicanery and rivalries of battle of competition. Oppression by force was replaced by corruption. The sword as the first social lever by gold. The right of the first night was transferred from the feudal lords to the bourgeois manufacturers. Prostitution increased to an extent never heard of. Marriage itself remained, as before, the legally recognized form. The official cloak of prostitution and moreover was supplemented by rich crops of adultery. So basically the in feudal times, all the corruption and bullshit and justice was out in the open. Engels is talking about how capitalism created a complete new world of historical economic circumstances in which inequity could manifest itself in a completely new way that hadn't been seen before. Yeah. Um, Versions of things like corruption existed prior. However, it was just simply enforced by might, whereas now it was something that happened behind closed doors. It's referring to the slogan, liberty, liberty fraternity, fraternity, equality. Uh, so that was that element of it was expressed through like the idea of a cartel where you have alliances between large ostensibly competitive forces. This is what we were talking about happened in the anarchy of production, where you ultimately plan the economy because of these types of alliances in the ruling class. Yes, it's not necessarily like exactly the same thing as what would ultimately be a proletarian state with a planned economy, but it is planned by unaccountable uh, people who, who do have their own factions and act in their own interests specifically as opposed to the interests of the proletariat. Liberté, égalité, anime. <laughs> in a word, compared with the splendid promises of the philosophers, the social and political institutions born of the triumph of reason were bitterly disappointing caricatures. 
All that was wanting was the men to formulate this disappointment. And they came with the turn of the century. In 1802, St. Simone's Geneva letters appeared. In 1808, appeared Fourier's first work, although the groundwork of his theory dated from 1799. On January 1st, 1800, Robert Owen undertook the direction of the new landmark. We kind of just said this, um, but how did these become bitterly disappointing caricatures with this reason dictating um, these equality, liberty-based projects? Um, because bourgeois institutions based on these principles um, devolved um, when confronted with the reality of its material conditions. Mm -hmm. Again, the social contract degraded into despoticism under capitalism. The promise of eternal peace was replaced by imperialism and conquest. The capitalist mode of production further divided class antagonisms between the bourgeoisie and the proletariat. Freedom of property only meant for large businesses and large capital to dominate and subsume smaller capital, which again, that constitutes the grounds for the development of imperialism over time. Um, and ultimately, the oppression of class became reinforced and enforced by money, which is the new currency by uh, which human uh, relations were mediated. Yeah, exactly. The primary mediating force. Mm -hmm. So at this time, however, the capitalist mode of production and with it, the antagonism between the bourgeoisie and the proletariat was still very incompletely developed. Modern industry, which had just arisen in England, was still unknown in France. But modern industry develops, on the one hand, the conflicts which make absolutely necessary a revolution in the mode of production, in the doing away with its capitalist character. Conflicts not only between the classes begotten of it, but also between the very productive forces and the forms of exchange created by it. And, on the other hand, it develops in these very gigantic productive forces, the means of ending these conflicts. If, therefore, about the year 1800, the conflicts arising from the new social order are only just beginning to take shape. This holds still more fully as to the means of ending them. The have-nothing masses of Paris, during the reign of terror, were able for a moment to gain the mastery, and thus to lead the bourgeois revolution to victory in spite of the bourgeoisie themselves. But, in doing so, they only proved how impossible it was for their domination to last under the conditions then obtaining. The proletariat, which then, for the first time, evolved itself from these have-nothing masses as the nucleus of a new class, as yet quite incapable of independent political action, appeared as an oppressed, suffering order to whom, in its incapacity to help itself, help could, at best, be brought in from without or down from above. So, at the point where the, the only hope for the proletariat was to have the bourgeoisie lift them out of their suffering circumstances. I'll Being... pay whatever taxes <laughs> necessary. If these people under me can just have fucking health care, I'll pay whatever taxes necessary. Right. So the, the survival of the proletariat being contingent at best on the mercy of the bourgeoisie is kind of what he's getting at here. With the ContraPoints line that I just referenced in, uh, in the comments on the previous episode, there were a couple of people who like brought that up as like a problem. They were like, how can you just say that like this expression of generosity as her saying that there should be an elite, that there should be a class above. 
And it's like, it's right there. The have nothing at less. best. Uh, you go have ahead. its help be brought from without or down from above. Like it's right there. That's like what I said, except for in, in insane, like millions of commas type sentence. The historical situation also dominated the founders of socialism. To the crude conditions of capitalistic production and the crude class conditions correspond crude theories. The solution of the social problems, which as yet lay hidden in undeveloped economic conditions, the utopians attempted to evolve out of the human brain, which just to be completely clear, that is saying social issues are economic issues. Yes. (laughs) Society presented nothing but wrongs. To remove these was the task of reason. It was necessary then to discover a new and more perfect system of social order and to impose this upon society from without by propaganda and wherever it was possible by the example of model experiments. These new social systems were foredoomed as utopian. The more completely they were worked out in detail, the more they could not avoid drifting off into pure fantasies. What's being said there is that these perfect societies couldn't be propagandized into existence. They couldn't be experimented into existence a la Kingston, New York, which is, by the way, kind of a utopian neo-feudal project. (laughs) These facts once established... We need not dwell a moment longer upon this side of the question, now wholly belonging to the past. We can leave it to the itinerary small fry to solemnly quibble over these fantasies, which today only make us smile. (laughs) I love Ingalls. Sometimes when he says shit like that, it's so funny to me. Your sass is real when it's there. And to crow over the superiority of their own bald reasoning as compared with such insanity. For ourselves, we delight in the stupendously grand thoughts and germs of thought that everywhere break out through their fantastic covering, and to which these Philistines are blind. Saint-Simon was a son of the great French Revolution, and at the outbreak of which he was not yet 30. The revolution was the victory of the Third Estate, i.e. of the great masses of the nation, working in production and in trade over the privileged idle classes, the nobles and priests. But the victory of the third estate soon revealed itself as exclusively the victory of a smaller part of this estate, as the conquest of political power by the socially privileged section of it, i.e. the property bourgeoisie. And the bourgeoisie had certainly developed rapidly during the revolution, partly by speculation in the lands of the nobility and of the church, confiscated and afterwards put up for sale, and partly by frauds upon the nation by means of army contracts. It was the domination of these swindlers that, under the directorate, brought France to the verge of ruin and thus gave Napoleon pretext for his coup d'etat. Hence to Saint-Simon, the antagonism between the third estate and the privileged classes took the form of an antagonism between the workers and the idlers. The idlers were not merely the old privileged classes, workers who were not only the wage workers, but also the manufacturers, the merchants, and the bankers. That the idlers had lost the capacity for intellectual leadership and the political supremacy had been proved, and was by the revolution finally settled. That the non-possessing classes had not this capacity seemed to Saint-Simon, proved by the experiences of the reign of terror. Then, who was to lead and command? According to Saint-Simon, science and industry, both united by a new religious bond, destined to restore the unity of religious ideas, which has been lost, since the time of the Reformation, a necessarily mystic and rigidly hierarchic new Christianity. But science, that was the scholars, and industry, that was, in the first place, the working bourgeoisie, 
the manufacturers, merchants, and bankers. These bourgeois were currently intended by Saint-Simon to transform themselves into a kind of public officials of social trustees, but they were to still hold vis-a-vis -vis of the workers a commanding and economically privileged position. The bankers especially were to be called upon to direct the whole of social production by the regulation of credit. This conception was in exact keeping with a time in which modern industry in France, and with it the chasm between the bourgeoisie and the proletariat, was only just coming into existence. But what Saint-Simon especially lays stress upon is this. What interests him first, and above all other things, is the lot of the class that is most numerous and the most poor. You want to read that French for us? Don't. <laughs> la classe est la plus nombreuse. La plus pauvre. All right. Already in his Geneva letters, Saint-Simon lays down the proposition that all men ought to work. In the same work, he recognizes also that the reign of terror was the reign of the non-possessing masses. See, he says to them, what happened in France at the time when your comrades held sway there, they brought about a famine. But to recognize the French Revolution as a class war, and not simply one between nobility and bourgeoisie, but between nobility, bourgeoisie, and the non-possessors, was, in the year 1802, a most pregnant discovery. In 1816, he declares that politics is the science of production and foretells the complete absorption of politics by economics. The knowledge that economic conditions are the basis of political institution appears here only in embryo, yet what is here already very plainly expressed is the idea of the future conversion of political rule over men into an administration of things and a direction of processes of production. That is to say, the abolition of the state, about which recently there has been so much noise. Saint-Simon shows the same superiority over his contemporaries, when in 1814, immediately after the entry of the Allies into Paris, and again in 1815, during the Hundred Days' War, he proclaims the alliance of France and England, and then of both these countries, with Germany, as the only guarantee for the prosperous development and peace of Europe. To preach to the French in 1815 an alliance with the victors of Waterloo required as much courage as historical foresight. So, like, Engels gives these three utopian socialists credit in where they are, in the theoretical abstract, making observations that make sense. Yeah. And that observations that had not been made before. Um, but as well, continue to go further, you can't just manifest these observations into existence and like peter had already said you can't experiment these into existence you can't propagandize these things into existence um so again however well-intentioned and the avant-garde these ideas were um the historical material conditions at the time did not afford for these things to take place and just in general regardless of where you are in history they can't just be manifested if in Saint-Simon we find a comprehensive breadth of view, by virtue of which almost all the ideas of later socialists that are not strictly economic are found in him in embryo, we find in Fourier a criticism of the existing conditions of society, genuinely French and witty, but not upon that account any <laughs> the less thorough. Fourier takes the bourgeoisie, their inspired prophets before the revolution, and their interested eulogists after it, at their own word. He lays bare remorselessly the material and moral misery of the bourgeois world. 
He confronts it with the earlier philosopher's dazzling promises of a society in which reason alone should reign, of a civilization in which happiness should be universal, of an illimitable human perfectibility. Where they use alchemy to turn money into love. Yeah, yeah, real Peter Buffett stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And with the rose-colored phraseology of the bourgeois ideologists of his time. He points out how everywhere the most pitiful reality corresponds with the most high-sounding phrases, and he overwhelms this hopeless fiasco of phrases with his mordant sarcasm. So he's, again, giving for it credit, Mm -hmm. saying he's acknowledging exactly the contradictions of what the bourgeois revolution claimed to advocate for. Yes. Um, being met materially with deepened inequity, just despotism, large capitalists overtaking um, small businesses in the market, mm-hmm. um, corruption replacing the more overt um, injustices of feudal society. Um, Fourier does his due diligence in, in pointing out these things and that, hey, they said they wanted liberty uh fraternity and equality um this is the opposite of that historically and dangles is pointing out how he did that and then the neoliberals came along just did all the same shit yeah right (laughs) this this fucking and this is why this is probably the most relevant text today for is not only a critic his imperturbably serene nature makes him a satirist and assuredly one of the greatest satirists of all time he depicts with equal power and charm the swindling speculations that blossomed. <laughs> Engels is such a kiss ass. And these are people he's criticizing. Um, Engels is doing the compliment sandwich on He steroids. is. He's doing the con. Yeah. Um, okay. He depicts with equal power and charm the swindling speculations that blossomed out upon the downfall of the revolution and the shopkeeping spirit prevalent in and characteristic of French commerce at that time. Still more masterly is his criticism of the bourgeois form of the relations between sexes and the position of woman in bourgeois society. He was the first to declare that in any given society, the degree of woman's emancipation is the natural measure of the general emancipation. So, Fourier was pro-lady boss. He was. You go, girl. He wanted the bitch bosses to shine like gloss. Yeah, he did. I mean, we're just on the second example of a utopian socialist and Engels' compliment sandwiching them and saying what they did right in the theoretical abstract. And we'll soon talk about how the aspirations, no matter how well-intentioned they were, of these three utopian socialists did not manifest materially. But Fourier is at his greatest in his conception of the history of society. He divides his whole course thus far into four stages of evolution, savagery, barbarism, the patriarchate, and civilization. This last is identical with the so-called civil or bourgeois society of today, i.e. with the social order that came in with the 16th century. He proves that the civilized stage raises every vice practiced by barbarism in a simple fashion into a form of existence, complex, ambiguous, equivocal, hypocritical that civilization moves in a vicious circle, in contradictions which it constantly reproduces without being able to solve them. Hence, it constantly arrives at the very opposite to which it wants to attain, or pretends to want to attain, so that, e.g., under civilization, poverty is born of superabundance itself. Fourier, as we see, 
uses the dialectic method in the same masterly way as his contemporary Hegel. Using these same dialectics, he argues against talk about illimitable human perfectibility, and that every historical phase has its period of ascent and also its period of descent, and he applies this observation to the future of the whole human race. As Kant introduced to natural science the idea of the ultimate destruction of the earth, Fourier introduced into historical science that of the ultimate destruction of the human race. Whilst in France, the hurricane of the revolution swept over the land, in England a quieter, but not on that account less tremendous, revolution was going on. Steam and the new tool-making machinery were transforming manufacturing into modern industry, thus revolutionizing the whole foundation of bourgeois society. The sluggish march of development of the manufacturing period changed into a veritable storm and stress period of production. With constantly increasing swiftness, the splitting up into large capitalists and non-possessing proletarians went on. Between these, instead of the former and stable middle class, an unstable mass of artisans and small shopkeepers, the most fluctuating portion of the population, now led a precarious existence. The new mode of production was, as yet, only at the beginning of its period of ascent. As yet, it was the normal, regular method of production, the only one existing under these conditions. Nevertheless, even then it was producing cyclical social abuses, the herding together of a homeless population in the worst quarters of the large towns, the loosening of all traditional moral bonds, of patriarchal subordination, of family relations, overwork, especially of women and children, to a frightful extent, complete demoralization of the working class suddenly flung into altogether new conditions, from the country into the town, from agriculture into modern industry, from stable conditions of existence into insecure ones that change day to day. Increasing technology, higher production machinery, further deepening the divide of bourgeoisie proletariat. The, the kind of brings in that concept of small business owners again, the, the mm -hmm. emergence of imperialism under capitalism, mm -hmm. monopolistic um, overtaking yeah. of smaller. At this juncture, there came forward as a reformer, a manufacturer 29 years old, a man of almost sublime childlike simplicity of character, and at the same time, one of the few born leaders of men, Robert Owen, had adopted the teaching of the materialistic philosophers, that man's character is the product, on the one hand, of heredity, and the other, of the environment of the individual during his lifetime, and especially during his period of development. In the Industrial Revolution, most of his class saw only chaos and confusion, and the opportunity of fishing in these troubled waters and making large fortunes quickly. He saw in it the opportunity of putting into practice his favorite theory, and so of bringing order out of chaos. He had already tried it with success as superintendent of more than 500 men in a Manchester factory. From 1800 to 1829, he directed the great cotton mill at New Lanark in Scotland as managing partner, along the same lines but with greater freedom of action and with a success that made him a European reputation. A population originally consisting of the most diverse and for the most part, very demoralized elements a population that gradually grew to 2,500, he turned into a model colony in which drunkenness, police, magistrates, lawsuits, poor laws, charity were unknown. And all this simply by placing the people in conditions worthy of human beings, and especially by carefully bringing up the rising generation. 
He was the founder of infant schools and introduced them first at New Lanark. At the age of two, the children came to school where they enjoyed themselves so much that they could scarcely be got home again. Whilst his competitors worked their people 13 or 14 hours a day in New Lanark, the working day was only 10 and a half hours. When a crisis and cotton stopped work for four months, his workers received their full wages all the time. And with all this, the business more than doubled in value and to the last yielded large profits to its proprietors. In spite of all this, Owen was not content. The existence which he secured for his workers was, in his eyes, still far from being worthy of human beings. These people were slaves at my mercy. This is a, a woke business owner. Yeah. Um, I mean, let's let's be completely frank. Like, that's more like getting it than pretty much any business owner now yeah. who claims to be woke. But again, this is why, the, regardless of how well-intentioned you are, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, um, even mm-hmm. if you're, you're Jeff Bezos, you cannot idealize a, a socialist society. Um, Nor can you cede fundamental economic or societal change by, like, putting a banner on Amazon.com that says Black Lives Matter. Yeah. All right. The people were slaves at my mercy. The relatively favorable conditions in which he had placed them were still far from allowing a rational development of the character and of the intellect in all directions, much less of the free exercise of all their faculties. And yet, the working part of this population of 2,500 persons was daily producing as much real wealth for society as less than half a century before. It would have required the working part of a population of 600,000 to create. I asked myself, what became of the difference between the wealth consumed by 2,500 persons and that which would have been consumed by 600,000? The answer was clear. It had been used to pay the proprietors of the establishment 5% on the capital they had laid out, in addition to over 300,000 pounds clear profit. And that which held for Newlandark held to a still greater extent for all the factories in England. If this new wealth had not been created by machinery, and perfectly as it had been applied, the wars of Europe in opposition to Napoleon, and to support the aristocratic principles of society, could not have been maintained. And yet this new power was the creation of the working classes. So workers are the backbone of society. Yeah. Is basically what Owens is saying. So work. To them, therefore, the fruits of this new power belonged. The newly created gigantic productive forces, hitherto used only to enrich individuals and to enslave the masses, offered to Owen the foundations for a reconstruction of society. They were destined, as the common property of all, to be worked for the common good of all. Owen's communism was based upon his purely business foundation, the outcome, so to say, of commercial calculation. Throughout, it maintained this practical character. Thus, in 1823, Owen proposed the relief of the distress in Ireland by communist colonies and drew up complete estimates of costs of founding them, yearly expenditure, and probable revenue. And in this definite plan for the future, the technical working out of details is managed with such practical knowledge, ground plan, front and side, and bird's eye views all included, that the Owen method of social reform once accepted, there is, from the practical point of view, little to be said against the actual arrangement of details. His advance in the direction of communism was the turning point in Owen's life. As long as he was simply a philanthropist, he was rewarded with nothing but wealth, applause, honor, and glory. He was the most popular man in Europe. 
Not only men of his own class, but statesmen and princes listened to him approvingly. But when he came out with his communist theories, that was quite another thing. Three great obstacles seemed to him especially to block the path to social reform, private property, religion, and the present form of marriage. He knew what confronted him if he attacked these, outlawry, excommunication from official society, the loss of his whole social position. Sound familiar? <laughs> oh! <laughs> but nothing of this prevented him from attacking them without fear of consequences. And what he had foreseen happened. Banished from official society, with a conspiracy of silence against him in the press, ruined by his unsuccessful communist experiments in America, in which he sacrificed all of his fortune, he turned directly to the working class and continued working in their midst for 30 years. Every social movement, every real advance in England on behalf of the workers, links itself to the name of Robert Owen. He forced through in 1819, after five years fighting, the first law limiting the hours of labor of women and children in factories. He was the president of the first Congress, at which all the trade unions of England united into a single great trade organization. He introduced, as transition measures, to the complete communistic organization of society, on the one hand, cooperative societies for retail trade and production. These have since that time at least given practical proof that the merchant and manufacturer are socially quite necessary. On the other hand, he introduced labor bazaars at the exchange of the products of labor through the medium of labor notes, whose unit was a single hour of work, institutions necessarily doomed to failure, but completely anticipating Proudhon's bank of exchange of a much later period, and differing entirely from this in that did not claim to be the panacea for all social ills, but only a step towards a much more radical revolution of society. The utopian's mode of thought was for a long time governed by the socialist ideas of the 19th century, and still governed some of them. Until very recently, all French and English socialists did homage to it. The earlier German communism, including that of Weitling, was of the same school. To all these, socialism is the expression of absolute truth, reason, and justice, and has only to be discovered to conquer all of the world by virtue of its own power. And as absolute truth is independent of time, space, and the historical development of man, it is a mere accident when and where it is discovered. So good. Yes, this is the real shit right here. Yeah. With all this, absolute truth, reason, and justice are different with the founder of each different school. And as each one's special kind of absolute truth, reason, and justice is again conditioned by his subjective understanding, his conditions of existence, the measure of his knowledge, and his intellectual training. There is no other ending possible in this conflict of absolute truths than that they shall be mutually exclusive of one another. Hence, from this nothing could come but a kind of eclectic average socialism which, as a matter of fact, has up to the present time dominated the minds of most of the socialist workers in France and England. Hence, a mishmash allowing of the most manifold shades of opinion, a mishmash of such critical statements, economic theories, and pictures of future society by the founders of different sects as excite a minimum of opposition, a mishmash which is the more easily brewed, the more definite, sharp edges of individual constituents are rubbed down in the stream of debate, like rounded pebbles in a brook. To make a science of socialism, it had first to be placed upon a real basis. They just came. <laughs> so, that concluding paragraph, 
is explaining how despite the, and again, I've said this so many times, it doesn't matter how well-intentioned these people are. It doesn't matter that Robert Owen was a class traitor, the good kind. It's not possible for the great truth understander to log on because all the great truth understanders have their own, um, based off of their own life experiences, uh, the historical limitations within which they themselves are constrained interacting with their own personal experiences to arrive at different conclusions of these arbitrary theoretical principles of justice, uh, truth, morality, reason. All Um, of which are at odds with the ruling class in society, which ultimately imposes its will. Exactly. Um, And and that these things, therefore, again, can't be just manifest with wanting them to happen or or coming up with this idea regardless of their morals their ideals and their goals for an equitable life and resolving class contradictions society's material conditions at their historical place and time restricted these things from manifesting and their idealism their their, their moralistic pursuits are also, and this gets into part two, constrained by the limitations of formal thought, which again was ruling class ideology um, dictating what's permissible in philosophical thinking. Exactly. Um, regardless, again, of their intentions or morals. So I, I like this summary point in Engel's sort of debunking what he says in the sending is that socialism is the expression of absolute truth, reason, and justice, and only ha- and has only to be discovered to conquer all the world by virtue of its own power. Again, like it's just it's the best idea, so we'll make this happen. Here's the the idea of absolute truth, exposing how relative and dependent on what is seated and um, enforced by the ruling class. It, it it ultimately like it changes from epoch to epoch and and you're not just going to suddenly come up with this perfect system that can just exist at some point in the future or just right after a revolution there's so much more to it than that it it is entirely dependent on the conditions of society as they are and again as the progression of society uh continually produces by debunking that statement we, we know this to not be the case, that socialism is just an expression of absolute truth, because if it were, then it would just be a matter of discovering it or stumbling upon it in this way. And in the context that Peter was talking about, um, also in treating socialism as an ideal principle to be obtained, that would mean that it was immutable and mm, mm-hmm. not contingent on the changes of historical and material reality of the time. Um, it would just be kind of an averaging out of all these utopian socialist thinking, and, and that is the ultimate platonic justice that, that can be achieved, um, that we've all thought of, um, at this perfect ideal to be attained. But like we talk about all the time, and this is the reason that I can't tell you exactly what to do for the revolution. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It's not just socialism being a perfect list of principles to be applied. 
Well, it, there's like a perfect it, expression. What, what, of what that. did he just say? What did he just say at the end of this? This is this is what it is. Okay, to make a science of socialism, it had first to be placed on a real basis. I can't tell you that this platonic definition of socialism is how you do the revolution. There's even a, a part where he says the more completely they were worked out in detail, the more they could not avoid drifting right. off into pure fantasies. I think that's the one of the most important lines, singularly. Well, it, well right, because it's also like, well, what do we do about socialism? The more specific that you get in contemplating and abstracting what socialism is, the further away you get from actual applicability to reality. Exactly. Because of the dialectic and that your historical conditions at any given space and time are constantly changing and thereby an effective socialist project responds and adapts to those changes. Just having these hypothetical socialisms to look at in your brain, that's not helpful. In fact, it's actually getting you further away from doing something that might enact socialism. It's also getting you further away from being satisfied with the actual material implementation of socialism. Because right. it probably isn't going right. to look like what it looks like in your head. No utopias yet. Imagining a perfect utopia is catharsis. So get ready for dialectic strap in, bitch, because we're dismantling formal thought next week. That's all for today. Thanks again for watching. This is Pact. I'm Peter. This is Miss Astronaut Cowboy Doctor. To help us out, click like, follow, subscribe, whatever. Leave us five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts and Audible. To support us, become a patron at patreon.com slash Peter Coffin. Thanks so much, guys. We'll see you later.